Welcome to another episode of Health Creators. This is Liv, and I'm joined here today by John Bogosian, founder and COO of Pangea Botanica, transforming the development of small molecules with the help of natural therapeutics. So John, when we talk about medicine today, we often are referring to Western medicine, but that's not the only kind of medicine there is. So why do you think this gap exists? Well, first of all, thanks a lot for having me on uh, the podcast, uh, Liv, and really looking forward to the conversation here today. Um, so in terms of the gap between Western medicine and other medicines, I think there's a lot of uh, let's say, lack of information out there. So maybe to back up a second, if we look at all FDA-approved medicines, there's actually 65% of those are originally nature-inspired. So if you think of all the drugs that we currently have at our disposal to treat um, any type of human disease, two out of three originally uh, are from, from nature. But the Pfizer's and the, and the kind of Sanofi's of the world um, are not advertising that because they bought a program from a larger biotech that in turn, you know, maybe like bought it from a small uh, biotech company like mine and that initially licensed, uh, you know, some intellectual property that came from a university that was working on a natural in ingredient. So actually, there is a whole host of history of nature ending up in our armada of medicines. Now, in terms of more, more recently, um, it's true that pharma has um, really stepped back from uh, nature as a source of drugs. And the, reason, uh, the reasons are multiple. One of them is that sometimes natural ingredients are difficult to manufacture. And so in order to scale that up, it's more difficult than uh, for, for other types of compounds. Another is that intellectual property is kind of complicated. Um, so in order to patent or to create a patentable position, um, you need to uh, apply some creative strategies with which pharma has really gone astray from. But the result that we have, that we have gone to is that Today, a lot of the R&D dollars are going into more high-tech uh, portions of the life sciences in industry, including CRISPR, you know, all sorts of platform technologies. But the reality is that there's still a whole host of different um, opportunities that are, I would say, lying around on shelves of academics around the world, um, from traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, other types of uh, traditional kind of medicines that are really ripe for the for the for the taking, and that's how we that's why we started Pangea, and that's our focus. Awesome. Um, yeah, I like that you mentioned Chinese medicine because I probably know more about that than uh, some of the other other fields. Um, and in Chinese medicine, I guess there's this, um, the base of it, the component of it is basically um, your, you have your warm and your cool medicines, basically. Um, and I guess the idea is that you have these different blends um, created from a base number of herbs that um, are used to treat different types of patients. And now um, how we usually look at it is that um, these medicines are more holistic and less precision, but um, that's not always the case. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And how can we, how can we leverage um, these Chinese medicines to, to be cures essentially or, or symptom relievers for existing? Yeah, sure. I, 
I think you're bringing up a good point. Um, I'd say for us, we take a very much uh, therapeutics approach to every problem. So the reality is that we're looking for a compound or a set of compounds that pharmacologically impacts um, a particular set of pathways that are involved in human disease. And sometimes um, the pharmacological activity in a particular plant that has been used in traditional Chinese medicine, say, is just a single compound within the plant. Sometimes it's a blend of multiple co- uh, kind of components of the of the plant. Um, our job is just to elucidate which which is it which is it in any particular case, and then move on that basis. I'll, I'll talk maybe by way of an example, which I think would be useful, um, and is close to our heart set. Pangea. So, and that's in the cognitive impairment space. So we had been looking for quite a while um, at uh, cognitive impairment and how to reverse that in a variety of uh, diseases, including like dementias and, and, and schizophrenias, etc. We stumbled upon a paper um, that eventually linked a particular receptor um, to a lot of different effects of many different drugs that lead to cognitive improvement. And when we looked, we screened the scientific literature, including traditional medicine, and we got a hit. There was a plant which is endemic of Indonesia and China, uh, which is brewed into a tea. These are leaves that are brewed into a tea that people uh, tend to give um, to uh, help with people's dementias uh, in the elderly. So upon looking at that actual uh, set of papers, we eventually identified a single ingredient called 7-8-DHF. It's a complicated uh, kind of chemical name, but it's, it's just a manifestation for one particular compound. So this is a good example where just a single active or bioactive ingredient of a plant is actually responsible for the pharmacological effect that we observe in humans. In other cases, like with the cannabis plant, it might actually be a blend of multiple components like CBD and THC in that case um, that actually leads to the therapeutic outcome. So we, we need to discriminate on a case-by-case basis, if that makes sense. Interesting. So while other drug discovery companies might um, start, for example, with the receptor and then try to build a molecule on top, what you guys are essentially doing are looking for an indication, finding a symptom profile, um, and then kind of searching papers uh, for a match on that symptom profile um, with natural molecules. That's a pretty good way to uh, 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 synthesize it. The way in which we operate is indeed starting from a place of knowledge aka there is already uh, some evidence of safety and an indication of efficacy in a human population, usually a traditional discovery by a set of peoples around the world uh, to treat a particular set of symptoms. And it's from that that we then uh, derive what the compound is, as opposed to, as you said, the traditional, more modern drug development pathway, which is to look at a receptor involved in a in a in an illness, and then to engineer a compound that neatly fits into the pocket of that receptor, for example. So we are kind of putting drug development, flipping it a little bit onto its head, and starting from a place where we think that we can de-risk um, the uh, the likelihood of hitting kind of safety and an efficacy threshold that allows us to get into the clinic very fast. 
um, because because that essentially shortens the entire time frame, right? So is the idea that like even at discovery, you're already considering um, the clinical development stages? Absolutely. So maybe to back up one one step, the the three major um, let's say phases of drug discovery and drug development are discovery. Um, then preclinical uh, development and then clinical development. Discovery is the period where indeed you are designing the compound with the objective being to have a lead molecule that really has the, the chemical and biological effect that you are expecting. The preclinical stage is essentially when you are testing this compound or set of compounds in animals um, to generate evidence of um, safety and also efficacy in animals. And then clinical the development is that same process, but in humans. And so at, at Pangea, we sort of save time by not requiring the full length of the discovery stage. Sometimes we will optimize the compound from its uh, naturally occurring molecule to optimize for pharmacological properties or to create a novel and stronger patent position. But we only then kind of plug in at the very last step of kind of discovery. So on average, we, we think that we can save between three and a half and four and a half years, kind of depending on the case, um, over the entire, you know, the typical uh, time of clinical development, which is, you know, between 10 and 15 years. Right, so, so bringing it from 10 to 15 years down to that kind of seven, eight year mark. That's right. That's, that's usually the, the, the objective. And that's not to say that, you know, run of the mill, um, drug development and drug discovery efforts are not worthwhile. It's just a little bit of a different model than the one that we have, where we try to shorten the path as much as possible and lower the cost by going straight into animal studies and into the clinic. Um, and then making sure that we can uh, deal with the, the risks that are inherent with this approach due to, the, to a playbook of strategies that we have developed over the years. Is, is that also the basis behind why it makes sense to acquire like more than just one um, assets. Yeah. Um, so there's a number of reasons why we ended up structuring this way. One is that we're uh, quite curious and we're very excited about a lot of different things. And we did not want to um, put ourselves into you know, a box of a particular set of diseases that we were going to go after. You know, most uh, most small biotech companies that you'll encounter will, you know, focus on a particular mechanism of action and associated set of diseases and just really specialize in that. What we believe very strongly is that because the chemical diversity of uh, the kingdoms of nature is so large, the likelihood that uh, we are to find potential leads for a variety of different illnesses is quite large. So at Pangea level, we just do a lot of different project incubation and scouting for opportunities. Um, and then we just go where the science leads us. Um, so if there is a particular uh, compound that might be helpful in a neuropsychiatric disorder, for example, we might have one project and program dedicated to that. If we find another that might be helpful in a particular kind of cancer, then we'll also have a separate one for, for, for that. And the idea is that the early stage steps that are needed to really assess the viability of the project um, in terms of the likelihood of success of a drug development endeavor in that area. Um, and the, some of the uh, steps that are needed early on, like filing patents, 
um, creating novel derivatives through medicinal chemistry, all of those are kind of the same. So we applied that, I would say, cookie-cutter approach to a number of different projects and then only promote the more kind of successful ones. And the idea is to indeed, as you said, build a portfolio um, of drug development programs so that we also can uh, hover up one level above the binary risk associated with any one of those programs so that in totality, we have a portfolio that will have a bell curve of success rates and that hopefully, you know, a bit like a VC fund that invests into, into a bunch of startups, we can, we can ensure that at least some of our projects kind of made it, make it to the FDA approval finish line. And um, is part of is part of this model also looking at where else you can purpose these molecules? Yes. Um, in general, I would say that every single one of our programs needs to uh, not be a one-trick pony. So uh, within a particular uh, plant, say, there might be a number of different compounds. What we will do within the first year is try to find what's called a lead asset for a lead indication. So this is the, the compound within the plant or the derivative thereof that is most likely to be responsible for the pharmacological effect that we observe, either in animals or in humans or in both. Um, and then match that with the most scientifically and commercially sound um, illness to go after. Uh, once we have that pairing, we then go straight into studies as fast as possible with that compound while simultaneously thinking about other potential uses, either of this compound or related compounds in that chemical space. And that then becomes our pipeline for that program. So every program will have a lead asset and then a set of pipeline assets. And then that constitutes one program. And we currently have four of those within Pangea. Um, and, and what is like the kind of critical number you need to hit in terms of number of programs? Oh, that's a, a question I wish I had the answer to today. Um, our objective is um, to incubate and start at least two of these programs every year. If you think about the, num the average number of years that it will take, say, the, to take back your example from earlier, the roughly like seven to 10 years of the shortened uh, time to a regulatory approval in our case. Um, if we want to have, you know, one regulatory approval per, per year, we need to at least start, you know, a bunch of them every year. Um, and we believe that within five years time, if we manage to start between two and three per year, uh, we will have a, a decent enough portfolio that we have a, a, a high chance of actually hitting an approval um, by the end of that period. But it's, uh, you know, the more textbook or the more pragmatic answer to this question would be if I, we are not supply constrained in terms of opportunities. There is way more opportunities out there than the ones that we can actually um, scrutinize at any one point in time right now. So if I had more, if I had the ability to raise even larger sums of money, I would just be able to focus on even yeah. more projects. Awesome. And um, Pangea started two years ago now? That's right. Um, and this was off the back of Compass, right? Ish. 
Would you call it a spin-out from Compass? And just for context um, to the audience, um, I know John from way back. Um, I think I met you when I was first an intern at Compass. And um, I remember thinking, like, you're probably one of the smartest people I've ever met at the time because, uh, uh, yeah, it would be like, wow, this guy, like... Uh, Graduated from MIT. He did a Harvard MBA. Uh, did you work at Goldman as well? No, that's my co-founder. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean, it's 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 clear that I was uh, that yeah. uh, that uh, as a as a young uh, soon to be graduate from university, you were uh, you know unduly impressed because I you know I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm 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 not one of the smart guys in the room in general. So I'll, I'll just say that. But but you're right. There is some joint history uh, with Compass, and for the audience. Kind of Compass is short for Compass Pathways. There are multiple compasses out there, I realized after we went public. Um, we are the Compass Pathways that um, essentially uh, developed psilocybin, which is an active ingredient of so-called magic mushrooms for the treatment of various mental health illnesses, including um, hard-to-treat depression. And it's in that context that we indeed met. Uh, you had done an internship, uh, which was great, actually, a few a few years back now. Um, and uh, uh, at that time, you know, I joined post 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 MBA, uh, wanting to build a company from scratch. And here was a company that was really looking to move the needle when it comes to the paradigm of how we treat mental health. Um, we actually struggled quite a bit in the early years to raise money when we, when we were telling investors that we wanted to administer a high dose of psychedelic to patients, uh, that were suffering with uh, depression. It was, uh, it was a pretty tall order for a venture capitalist to really believe, uh, at, at the time. And we, we, we indeed made a lot of progress. We ran a really large phase two study, which was quite successful. And the company was lucky enough to go public on the NASDAQ in September 2020. Um, and shortly after that, I decided to leave um, to go back to early stage company building, which is what I had enjoyed most. Um, but there isn't any uh, relationship between the two entities other than um, a couple of my co-founders and I are, um, are people that also participated in the building of Compass Pathways. Um, the, the link there, though, is very clear. Um, at the end of the Compass Pathways story, we sat down and we thought, well, you know, why have we been able to beat the odds of drug development uh, with psilocybin? And I don't think the answer is that we were you know, better than average drug, uh, drug developers. I certainly, you know, did not have a lot of experience uh, building drug development programs prior to Compass Pathways. We believe that the reason was that we were, uh, we were starting with a compound, psilocybin in this case, that already had a lot of evidence of safety and efficacy. And because of that evidence, we were able to short circuit some of these early stages of drug discovery and development, as I said earlier, and convinced the FDA to let us go straight into human studies. Um, and by the way, we ended up succeeding in the first um, uh, clinical stage phase two study because guess what? There had been tribes around the world that had already been using that plant for this purpose for hundreds, if not millennia. And we thought, what about if we were to scale this approach to other compound classes that would benefit from the same approach? 
And that was the idea that eventually morphed into Pangea Botanica. Um, and we I decided to keep the band together. And a couple of my co-founders are also former Compass. And so, um, and I, sh and I should say, I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to see that some of those initial connections, um, and friendships that I made at Compass are still surviving to, to this day, including you, but also one of our colleagues at Pangea now is, is, is another fellow former intern from Compass that eventually joined us after uh, he worked for a couple of years. So it's really great. Awesome. That wasn't Ali, was it? No, that was Jafko. Okay. Um, and what other learnings do you think you took from that journey at Compass, um, you know, post MBA kind of, really like leading a lot of the efforts into IPO. Um, what do you think um, were, were some of the key learnings you took from Compass now applying it into Pangea? That's a great question, Liv, thanks. Um, in terms of learnings, let's see. So one of them, uh, which wasn't uh, so obvious er early on, is the importance of a sound intellectual property strategy when it comes to natural products discovery and development. Uh, at, at Compass, we were able to eventually build a multi-layered IP strategy, uh, but some of it came a bit later stage, uh, which uh, was not ideal. So at Pangea, uh, we have transformed those sets of learnings into an IP-first approach, whereby every project that we uh, scrutinize um, has to be able to have a clear path to um, a strong pattern Pattern position. If we if we cannot um, have a clear line of sight to that, we'll just discard the project. That doesn't mean that there isn't scientific merit to the project, but it's just really hard to make it commercially viable and therefore in investable by by external investors. So that's that's kind of one one learning. One more softer learning I'd say is I really uh, enjoyed um, in the latter years of Compass um, having. Uh, Kind of support from people-focused team members. Um, and I think that we at Compass brought this organizational design type of questions to the fore, uh, to the foreground a little bit late. So at Pangea, what we decided to do is to hire a people-focused manager quite early on in, in our journey so that we can uh, be a bit more proactive to design for the next stage of organizational growth. So, for example, you know, we grew bit from 10 people to 30 people in 2022. Um, and that led to a number of different um, potential issues in terms of governance of the organization. Of course, a team of 10 can just meet in a single meeting. Yeah. A team of 30, a little bit kind of tougher to do that. Um, so because we had someone within the team that was focused on that, we were able to uh, preemptively design the next stage of governance um, in the first half of the year so that we could implement it in the latter half and not have to go through, quote unquote, growing pains, which is often the case in a startup life where you exposed end up making changes to the organizational design to solve a problem that you now know exists. I, I think the idea is to... Um, is to kind of design for the future. So I, I guess a people-focused manager is almost like an ops manager plus HR kind of bundled together, but with like a more long-term spin to it. Yeah, yeah. I'd say, I'd say the value of having a person like that in a, 
even in a team of 20, um, is, is quite high. And I would say even more so these days with mostly virtual or distributed org organizations where aspects of kind of company culture can quickly get kind of diluted with people working from various places and not necessarily meeting in the confines of a, of a, of like a single office on a weekly basis. Um, uh, thinking about uh, right to work in a variety of these kind of different locations, etc. All of these like different work streams end up, I think, adding up to um, a job description for someone to be able to really give the tender love and care that people need in a in a in a virtual organization. And do you think that um, most of the people who work at Pangea um, kind of adopted the same culture as um, from Compass as well? Um, and is it is it almost like because of what you're working on, you attract a certain demographic of people as well? I mean, the thing is at Compass, right? Mm -hmm. It was focused on psychedelic research. Yeah. So of course it was like super edgy. So you you would you would imagine that you would want to have super open-minded people. Um, I think it's actually more a function of the the founding team or the executive team um so i think eventually uh like attracts like right yeah. and so and so to an extent the leading by or the the type of behaviors that the founding or executive yeah. team in a team will uh exhibit i think will then be picked up and emulated by other people in the team um and then you layer on top of that the fact that um for a significant number of people in the team, especially in the early days, it was mostly uh, people that had already worked with us prior and kind of decided to uh, work work with us again. And so to an extent, it was, you know, us building our own tribe, which of course then builds, you know, kind of similar people profiles. And we have since, you know, tried to, uh, kind of resist that bias a little bit, right? Because otherwise you risk being in an echo chamber of people that think and feel kind of similarly. And then you just like are more, more prone to making mistakes because everybody is speaking in the same way or uh, likely to have the same opinion. So actually in the more recent rounds of, of, of hiring, we have tried to also bring in different perspectives. So we have this, um, uh, we we use the Enneagram uh, profiling tool, which kind of like like buckets people in one of nine profiles. So we are. Is that what we did with the colors? Uh, yeah. So that was another one. That was an insights discovery. So that was the blue, green, yellow, and red yeah. um, uh, view of the world. I think all, all a lot of these tools yeah. are kind of coming at psychometric profiling in a similar way. They just have like a different way to brand it. But what we have is we have a map of the different profiles in, on the team, yeah. and then we identify gaps. And the idea is the next time that we have the ability to hire someone new, the idea is to maybe fill some of those gaps and to bring someone in that is likely to have a different type of, of uh, kind of perspective. So sometimes we also include these tests as part of the recruitment process. Interesting. Um, but from your experience of doing this now quite a few times, um, do you find it's easier to or do you find it's more effective to just bring people you know in the beginning like first 10 hires um would you would you source applicants from outside or do you think internal network first 10 hires 
So, uh, so first off, it's only the second time that I do this. So it's, it's not like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a repeat serial founder, founder being able to, uh, to, to talk through a lot of different data points. But from the ones that I've seen, I think there is value, yes, in uh, being able to uh, trust those early employees quite, quite highly um, and relying on people that you already know or you have worked with before increases it simply increases the likelihood of that being the case. That said, um, we uh, were we also went outward um, with our recruitment efforts, even for the 10 first employees, um, simply because we did not necessarily have access to all the different skill sets that we thought were really important uh, for Pangea. For example, our chief IP officer uh, was not someone that we knew before. That said, um, they, ha they have to be mission aligned. I think you mentioned that. That's very important because those first 10, 20, 30 hires are the lieutenants that later build their own teams when the founding team or executive team no longer has the ability to really get into the nitty gritty. So you want people that are mission aligned. And so there, what we ended up doing is to look at press other precedents of companies um, that have succeeded in natural compounds-based drug discovery and development. And we ended up finding one of them called GW Pharma, mm. which has successfully developed two FDA-approved products uh, based on the cannabis plant. Um, and um, after their exit to a large US uh, company called Jazz Pharma, we were able to entice their chief, their, their head of IP to join us as cheap IP chief IP officer. And so I think there's a couple of stories like that where you have to find mission-aligned people for that first crew. So it's interesting that you mentioned this um, idea of that you're not a serial entrepreneur yet because you're on your second company. But how I um, see Pangea is almost like you get an uh, infinite number of companies to, to start this with because um, when you're acquiring assets, um, they're not just uh, product off the shelf. You have to, you have to build teams around them. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? And um, is, it, is it exciting for you to be able to then apply these learnings like many more? Yeah. Uh, thanks for the question, because that's actually quite inherent to the model that we have. So it's very much by design that we made Pangea Botanica um, agnostic to the therapeutic area or type of illness. Um, the only common thread has to be that there is some level of evidence that already exists out there for us to latch onto. Um, and indeed, that means that we can do it over and over again for a number of different assets that then become programs, that then become teams, as you've, you, you've said. Very much at the, at the highest level, um, the Pangea culture is one. Um, and, and everyone is our team is driven by the same objective, which is to advance human health um, through the development of therapeutics from nature. Um, over time, though, when an asset is licensed from university, to your point earlier, and we build a program around it, there will be subject matter specialist expertise that is needed to be built uh, by way of a dedicated team around a particular set of compounds and an illness that we are looking to treat with that compound. And that might later on lead to, you know, a, an own kind of subculture, or if we then partner that program with a pharmaceutical company or do something else, it might become its own, 
uh, kind of culture. So I'm, I'm very much excited, for example, to currently lead as its CEO our first program, uh, Ekana Health, which is also its own company, where we have also raised a seed round of 10 million um, in the last 18 months. Um, and there we have already started to build that independent management team that really has a lot of expertise in that particular niche area. And, and we hope to be able to do that for each of our programs over time. And um, what's, what's the end goal uh, with Pangea? Um, what is the impact you want to leave on the world? That's a great question, Liv. Um, the question of impact was one that we uh, thought about very deeply when we started the company. Um, I was quite keen, as well as my co-founders, to uh, be able to uh, meaningfully engage with traditional healers and uh, human populations that make the initial discoveries that we can then build on top of. This is something that um, there is legislation around this uh, in the world called the Nagoya Protocol. The way that we try to, to do this and to create impact, long-term impact, is every time that there is a compound class that might be helpful to treat a particular illness, if we can trace that compound back to a particular set of communities that have discovered it and used it, like in Kana Health, um, there is the, the, the sand people um, in modern-day South Africa that have been using the Kana plant for medicinal purposes for hundreds of years. What we have done there is we have signed what's called a benefit-sharing agreement, which, as its name suggests, shares the benefits um, of the drug development program with the SAM. So um, on a yearly basis, we make uh, some payments to help with um, running the administration of their trust. And the idea is if we get a product approved by the FDA, there would be a portion of the profits that would then be routed back, a bit like royalties in, yeah. in, in pharma are routed back to universities from which you license intellectual property that would go back to the sand so they can do things like habitat conservation, cultural conservation, and things like that. And so I really hope that that can be the lasting impact that Pangea can have, that not only can we improve human health by bringing a couple of therapeutics and novel treatment options onto the market, but we can also help to conserve our planet's natural resources, a bit like the various continents formed the original continent of Pangea. You know, that's, that's also, so that was also the inspiration for the company name. And the idea is to make sure that we can contribute to the improvement of natural conservation on Earth. I love that. I, I didn't know that. Um, I actually didn't know that. Uh, so that's awesome. It's almost like um, you have these creators and um, they don't really have a platform for their creation. And this is like a way of... Beautiful, beautiful way to put it back to creators. Uh, I, I think that's, that's right. You know, there are so many different uh, university professors, scientific co-founders that have stumbled upon, you know, real innovation, but don't necessarily have the tools to translate it into a proper drug development program. Um, and that's what Pangea is for. And I hope that we can be a substrate so that many creators join us over the years so that we can advance human health together.